at our last seminar, uh, we had uh, two of the sessions focused on the Your Hero Centre and the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, now, this time, the Oxford Martin School takes centre stage with uh, three speakers from that, our first three. Now, our first two are from the Future of Humanities Institute. And Alan Defoe is Associate Professor in the International Politics of AI and Director of the Centre for the Governance of AI at the Future of Humanity Institute. His research examines the causes of great power war and the global politics surrounding tr transformative technologies, in particular concerning the risks from artificial intelligence. To help scientists better study these and other topics, he also works on methods for causal inference and for promoting transparency. Now, Alan will be doing a double act with Karina Prunkel. Now, Karina is a senior research scholar at the Future of Humanity Institute, where her research focuses on the philosophy and ethics of AI. She collaborates with the Centre for the Governance of AI on how to best implement aspects into current and future governance solutions. And uh, Nigel was talking about the teaching of AI, and Max will actually be joining us later when he's finished his current teaching session. Well, Karina has taught three innovative courses on government, governance and AI at Oxford. So, Alan and Karina. Uh, so thank you, uh, Peter and Nigel. I thought that was an excellent opening uh, talk that will save me some time in my remarks. So uh, Karina and I will tell you about some of the work going on at the Center for the Governance of AI, which, as mentioned, is at the Future of Humanity Institute uh, and the Philosophy Faculty, University of Oxford. We can begin by just asking, what is this term governance? So the sort of two key terms, ethics and governance, are often used, and it's, it's valuable to try and reflect on what do these mean. Uh, and one de definition or notion of governance is a very descriptive definition. It says governance is merely the processes by which decisions are made. And things that shape this notion of governance are norms, policies, institutions, laws, but also things like technology, code, infrastructure. Right? All of this shapes how decisions are made. Now, to motivate uh, the importance of governance, uh, I think it's useful to uh, quote what we might think of as a theory of how AI governance uh, could work uh, from Vladimir Putin. So the, the quote goes, whoever leads an AI will rule the world. Uh, this is a theory of governance, if you will, because it tells you how AI could change the way in which decisions are made. In particular, it's a stark theory of governance. It says AI will concentrate power uh, in whomever uh, leads an AI. This quote uh, received a lot of media attention uh, uh, throughout the world, but also in national security uh, conversations and, and hallways, uh, because I think it reflects a fear many have that AI could be displacing in power in world order uh, and also, of course, it's resonating here with uh, concerns about uh, the role that Russia plays in the world. Now, it's worth remarking that when Putin made this statement, he was not staring ominously into the camera. Um, in fact, he was uh, hosting a middle school science fair, uh, televised, where he was broadly just encouraging these uh, s children, these, these uh, young budding scientists, in their various projects. And this uh, one was a remark in re relation to a robotics project. He had a lot of cooperative and nice things to say about AI, but this was the quote that was really pulled out of context uh, and echoed around the world. And I think this partly illustrates the challenge we have having a mature, calm, global conversation about AI governance because of the fears, because of the ways in which uh, um, claims can be amplified and taken out of context. So our job will not be easy. Now this motivates a normative notion of governance, which is that we don't just care about how decisions are made. We also want those decisions to be made in a good way where good means something like effective, legitimate, inclusive, adaptive. 
Okay, so at the Center for the Governance of AI, we are both interested in how decisions are made and how technology and institutions and so forth shape those decisions, but also in how we can get to a good set of uh, governance structures. When we think about the governance of AI, there's a narrow definition which focuses on specific systems, algorithms deployed in a particular domain, be it criminal justice, uh, making loans and so forth, or things like autonomous vehicles, robotics. There's also a narrow interpretation of ethics, right? the ethics of a particular system being deployed. There's also a broad interpretation of the governance and ethics of AI, which says AI could have a, a wide range of impacts on things that matter to us, and we need to think about how we can manage those impacts. Uh, so impacts such as labor displacement, challenges to democracy and social epistemics, how as a community we make decisions, uh, and strategic instability, which uh, means nuclear instability. So the risks to um, the risks of nuclear war, in short. Now a question I had for myself uh, is how does our remit, what, what we're working on, relate to the Ethics and AI Institute. Uh, and from conversations with Peter, I've come to understand that ethics and AI is very much understood in this broad sense, to the, the full range of potential impacts. So I would say that the, the problems we're studying are the same. The scope of the problems are the same. But perhaps the emphases and the tool set are, are somewhat different and complement each other. We tend to bring the tools of social scientists, policy science, and in particular, an emphasis on the geopolitical character of the challenge. Okay. Um, Okay, so here we are, uh, and in summary, our mission is to help humanity achieve the benefits and avoid the risks associated with advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, now, it may seem like the kind of mission that this group could complete on our own, or maybe with a bit of help, uh, that, that's meant to be sarcastic. Actually, it, it's, it's not going to be easy. The governance of AI will be uh, a very difficult challenge, and I'll briefly explain why. Uh, if you think about AI as a general purpose technology, this is a, a concept that's been used to think about uh, technologies like electricity, the combustion engine, uh, then we can see that AI will not just have these impacts in various narrow uh, applications, but really in a, a deep transformative sense, transforming the economy, society, politics, military. Um, and we could go through the properties of AI as we understand it and see why it poses such challenges for governance, so that the harms and the benefits tend to be diffuse. The technology is so fast moving and requires such technical sophistication to understand that so many of the developments in AI are dual use in the sense that they have scientific, commercial, uh, humanitarian benefits, but those same technologies with slight modification can be misused, uh, can cause harm, can be used for the military. So if we try to enumerate the governance challenges, uh, we'll get a long list. Here's uh, one such list. I've grouped them into several uh, categories. Um, maybe I'll point to one subcategory that's perhaps neglected in this conversation, which is AI safety. This is uh, really a, a set of work that needs to be done in collaboration with uh, computer scientists, ML researchers. Uh, the Future of Humanity Institute has an AI safety group and we collaborate with uh, researchers at other uh, labs and elsewhere. The work that we do is mostly on this right-hand side, so thinking about domestic political uh, challenges, international political economic challenges, and then especially challenges related to international security. So I'm now going to start moving quickly to just give you a, f uh, a sampling of some of our work. Uh, so to begin, if you want to uh, have a more, a more lengthy overview of how we think about some of these problems and how they relate. You can uh, look at this research agenda document uh, that I wrote, uh, which breaks up the problem into four categories, uh, slightly different. So the first is the technical landscape. This is work that needs to be done by ML researchers and economists and, and some others that tries to understand what's the current state of ML uh, and, and uh, AI, not just ML. Um, ML is machine learning. Uh, and also what it would look like in the future. So how will it change uh, economic structures, how will it change uh, the demand for different kinds of labor and so forth. 
The next category is politics. This is where most of our work to date has been. And this is thinking about the various ways that uh, political institutions can help manage and develop AI, but also the uh, disruptions and um, opportunities that AI poses for uh, uh, political institutions. Ideal governance refers to the more normative challenge of how can we envision what it is as a society we want, uh, what are institutions that might do a good job of managing the risks and uh, 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 eliciting the benefits. And then finally, policy refers to near-term policy recommendations that we can make to universities, to government, uh, international bodies, uh, AI labs and firms. Okay, so now I'm going to go quickly. Uh, so one of our first uh, projects that got a lot of attention was what, what's called the Malicious Use Report. Um, this was led by Miles Brundage, who's now at OpenAI. And this was our attempt to just sort of think through and catalog the various risks that AI could pose. Uh, for example, one of uh, the risks that we talked about in here was deepfakes, which at the time was relatively unknown. It was, it was sort of a technical curiosity and, and speculation, even though it wasn't so long ago. Now, of course, we're seeing this uh, in the news, uh, uh, posing all kinds of uh, challenges to privacy, uh, decency, and also um, political uh, conversations. One of our uh, collaborators, he's a DPhil at Oxford, is Jeff Ding. And he's done a lot of work on Chinese AI policy, innovation policy, global technology policy, and how that relates to uh, China. And if you're interested in this, he has a weekly newsletter uh, where he uh, sometimes translates works coming out of China and also just reflects on uh, the many interesting issues in this space. Uh, another collaborator, Bao Bao Zhang, uh, uh, is the lead on our survey work. So we've done surveys of publics and uh, experts. This depicted here is a survey we did of American uh, citizens. Uh, and we also have a survey uh, in the works on Chinese citizens, and then we're going to survey European uh, citizens. Um, and I don't know if you can read the left-hand side, uh, but this is one of our interesting results. Uh, we asked uh, these Americans which institutions, which organizations they most trusted to develop, manage and develop AI in the uh, public interest. And we found such things as Americans trust uh, university researchers, so that's good uh, for us, I guess. Uh, and uh, the US military is another institution that there's a lot of trust in. Maybe second in place were tech companies. So, so Google, for example, scored well, uh, and Microsoft and some others, with one big exception, uh, and that was Facebook. Now, and interestingly about Facebook, even though we surveyed this after the Cambridge Analytica results uh, um, scandal occurred, we did a pilot beforehand, and the results were basically the same. So this uh, concern about Facebook uh, governance um, ha has a long history. Uh, and then Americans also don't put a, an especially large amount of trust in their government. So federal government, state government, and international governmental bodies like the UN uh, do not, did not score well there. Another interesting result here is we asked uh, these respondents which AI governance challenges they thought were most likely to cause uh, to have a large impact uh, in the world in the next 10 years, and which were most important. One takeaway is that all of these issues scored very high on importance. So on the y-axis, you can see they're all somewhere around 2.5, which is somewhere between important and very important. But another interesting result is that there was meaningful variation in these different issues. Uh, so for example, uh, the issues that were regarded as most likely to impact a large number of people were data privacy, cyber attacks, surveillance, and digital manipulation. Now there's, of course, always ways in which you might want to ask these questions differently to, to better uh, elicit their beliefs. In this case, I think because we asked about uh, the challenges in the next 10 years, that gave a certain kind of response. Whereas if you're thinking longer term, um, other issues like technological unemployment, uh, I expect would um, be judged as more impactful. Okay, so we've also done uh, surveys of AI researchers and experts. Um, this, uh, these figures refer to an older paper of ours from uh, 2017. Uh, we also have a recent survey we've done. Uh, the results will be coming out of that soon. 
Um, and I won't say much about this, just for the interest of time, uh, but we had some interesting results, for example, on the left figure, asking these uh, experts to just forecast when various capabilities would be achieved. And for example, on the bottom, you can see StarCraft. That refers to superhuman StarCraft performance. And what's nice about some of these questions is that they, are, they have to do with tasks that should be achievable in the near term, where near term is like 5 to 15 years. And so what that means is, after about 10 years, we can start evaluating how well uh, these uh, experts did at forecasting technological developments. We can also analyze by demographics. Uh, are certain kinds of experts better able, more calibrated in their technological forecasting? And so the reference to StarCraft, of course, is that uh, DeepMind has since uh, resolved uh, when this uh, task would be achieved. Uh, we have some work. This is with a computer scientist uh, who's now a PhD student at Cornell, uh, looking at the social implications of data efficiency. And maybe I'll just remark that I think work in this space, in the ethics and governance of AI, really benefits from a, a, a deep conversation between the technical experts and the, the social, ethical, philosophical experts. Uh, so in this case, data efficiency is when you can uh, sort of do more with less data. And there's a, a first conceptual perspective that's useful, which is to think of this uh, of data efficiency in two ways. One is to think about it in terms of the access effect. If you need any given level of performance, say it's uh, an autonomous vehicle that is sufficiently safe that the regulators will approve it, you will be able to achieve that with, with less data. Okay, that's the access effect. The second perspective, we call the performance effect, is that for any given level of data that you have, you'll be able to achieve a higher level of performance. Okay, now given those two perspectives, uh, there's often some uh, intuitions that emerge from it. For example, some people think, well, data efficiency means that the market, the technological, uh, the, the market in AI will become more competitive, right? Instead of having a few big tech companies, you'll have more entrants, right? Because you can do more with less data. Uh, well, what this paper did is really reflect on some of these intuitions and show that they're not as straightforward as, as you might think. Uh, and I, for want of time, I won't explain, but I'm happy to do a Q&A or reference you to the paper. Okay, I'm gonna skip. Uh, so another set of projects we have, uh, this is with a historian of technology of, of this particular period, is to look at moments in history when humanity has confronted powerful technologies, here depicted as uh, the airplane, and then on the right-hand side is the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission, uh, where deliberations were taking place over the control of nuclear weapons. So here are circumstances where humanity has confronted an emerging powerful technology that many regarded as posing a, a joint danger, a, a danger to sort of all the great powers. And uh, many individual scientists, uh, members of the public, but also political elites tried to find ways to build global institutions to minimize those risks. And of course, I should qualify, I'm not saying that AI is the same as nuclear weapons or the bomber, right? These are very different kinds of technologies, different circumstances. But there are lessons, I think, to be drawn from history when we have confronted technologies, and um, in both these cases that were perceived to be highly valuable commercially, uh, but also posing uh, a disruptive um, impact for military uh, stability. And uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting lessons to be learned here. Many of us didn't even know this took place, that there was a movement to control the bomber, uh, and even to have an international air force. So bombers would only be possessed by the League of Nations. No one country would be allowed to build bombers. Uh, fighters were allowed because those are defensive technologies, it was thought. And then many of us uh, have forgotten this historical moment when uh, the US and the Soviet Union had a, a multi-month conversation in the UN about moving all nuclear materials and nuclear weapons over to the UN for control, right? In, in the current global climate, we think this is just impossible, uh, but this conversation did happen because it was provoked by the fear of a nuclear arms race, which of course ended up happening. 
Uh, so in conclusion, there's a lot of governance challenges and ethical challenges that we're going to face. Uh, and I do think many of these become especially difficult in the presence of geopolitical competition. Uh, and this is uh, something that resonates with many of these. So even something like privacy becomes much harder in a world that's competing economically uh, between these economic blocks. So Europe, for example, might want to have more stringent privacy policies, but there's a concern that if Europe adopts that, then Europe has no chance of cultivating an AI champion the way Silicon Valley and China have. Uh, and similarly, in the US, there's debates about regulation of Facebook and others. And a often used retort is, if you regulate us, if you break us up, then China will win. Then you know, the Chinese AI uh, champions will win. And so you can see how even what seem like domestic political ethical issues uh, cannot be understood except uh, without understanding the character of global competition. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Akrina. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Peter, for inviting us today. It's really a pleasure to speak here. Um, so I will be talking about a bunch of different projects that we've been doing at FHI, but I will start with a project of mine on human autonomy. And in particular, it's a question of whether and how AI systems may affect hum human autonomy. Now, autonomy is one of these concepts that has been popping up in guidelines, in ethics principles recently, quite a lot. But uh, surprisingly, there's not a lot of uh, academic work that has been done on the topic. And I think it's a bit like with fairness, where philosophers have been thinking about these concepts for a long, long time. Um, it's the same with autonomy. We've been, uh, there's a lot of philosophical work on philosophical thought on autonomy. And the question is, like, what can philosophy contribute to, uh, to a topic like, important as this? Now, what do we mean by, uh, by autonomy? Of course, philosophers never agree on anything, but uh, broadly speaking, we can say that autonomy refers to the ability to self-govern. Um, so it, it's the ability of a human beings to, to be their own persons, to have actions guided by beliefs, preferences, values that are in some sense, in some important sense, genuinely their own, as opposed to externally imposed by a manipulation or coercion. Now, um, when we look at the principles and the guidelines um, in, in ethics of AI, then we see that autonomy actually is used in a, in a, diff in a variety of different ways. So of course, like, there is the um, autonomy as personal autonomy, which was the concept that I just introduced and um, that is incredibly rich. So I won't have time to go into a lot of detail of what philosophers have said about personal autonomy. But um, the high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, for example, has the principle of autonomy and writes that AI systems should not unjustifiably subordinate, coerce, deceive, manipulate, condition, or hurt humans. But that's about it in terms of uh, personal autonomy and the AI ethics guidelines. Usually, when, the, when these guidelines speak about autonomy, what they mean is more control, autonomy as control. So, I mean, I would call this the principle of control, but um, they use the term autonomy usually. It's, it's about maintaining and exerting control about, uh, over AI systems, over the AI system in question. Sometimes people also speak about uh, maintaining um, the, the, the power to decide where, which tasks are being outsourced to AI systems, but it's very much about controlling the AI system. Now, these two are clearly not the same. So for example, I may not have control over which advertisement uh, pops up on my screen or uh, which recommendation system uh, recommends the next song to me, but this doesn't mean that, in my, um, that my personal autonomy in some sense is affected by this. So yeah, so I mean, 
both of these are very rich topic, and I think there is some uh, there are some serious concerns underlying the principle of control as well. Uh, but uh, it's up to interpretation whether they might be more referring to consent or more about questions about meaningful meaningful human control. So instead, I'd like to talk a bit more about personal autonomy, like the the concept of uh, that our beliefs and values are genuinely our own, and just give a subset of possible ways that AI may interfere with personal autonomy. So there is a paradigm case of manipulation. So Cambridge Analytica, for example, attempted large-scale large voter manipulation. It's quite uh, it's very unclear whether they succeeded, succeeded at that, probably not. But what's important here is the scale um, and the potential for abuse and the potential for manipulation by AI systems. Now then there is also um, adaptive, adaptive preference and belief formation by AI systems. So what I have in mind here are mostly, mostly recommendation algorithms that, um, like those are algorithms as the name suggests, so that first predict the user's preferences on the basis of data uh, they have access to, and then present the user with options that best fit those preferences. So we know these, uh, they're being used across the bench. Um, we know these from Spotify, Netflix, uh, YouTube, uh, and so on. Now, they may, like, it turns out that they may actually alter preferences as opposed to merely adapting to our preferences. And now their first, uh, their first studies, and like one of them, I linked the paper at the bottom by Adomag Vitius, um, who shows how preferences change on the basis of a, of a random, uh, of a fake recommender system giving, uh, giving ratings to, a certain, to certain songs and, and videos I think they looked at. Now finally, we might, there is also the concern for the loss of competence, so that, we that we lose the competence of making authentic decisions in some sense. Like, again, this is a very complex issue that I can only touch on. Now, maybe some more uh, advertisement of how great autonomy is. The thing is, like, it overlaps with a lot of other areas that we're already looking at in, uh, in AI ethics, like privacy and surveillance, the need for transparency of AI systems and the use of AI systems, but also about questions of responsibility. Now, the main takeaway here is that the, while personal autonomy might currently not be, but it might be not at stake, like the more sophisticated AI systems get, the more problematic um, this could be. This could be a problem. And they are getting very sophisticated. So here is an example of, um, of GPT-2, which is a language model developed by OpenAI. And what it does is you enter a sentence by hand or a title or, an or a paragraph and it completes the article. So here I entered just for fun the, like the title, the ethics of autonomy and artificial intelligence, and I was looking at what it, what it was producing. And fortunately, it didn't uh, write an abstract about my work, uh, but uh, instead uh, it came up with something about the moral responsibility, responsibilities of robots. Um, and there was another case where it was talking about autonomous vehicles. So but it's, like, it's very coherent, it's very surprising, and uh, very advanced AI system. Now the reason why GPT-2 became, became famous was not only because it one of, was one of the breakthroughs in AI development and in, in language models, it was also because OpenAI made the choice of only partially releasing the model. So OpenAI as a company decided, well, maybe the model could be used for malicious purposes, or, and so we're going, to, we're going to have a staged release. We're not going to release the fully trained model. And this sparked a lot of uh, 
controversy in the machine learning community, which is usually known for being quite open, for publishing a lot open source, for publishing their algorithms so that other people can access it. Now the question is uh, whether this, is prob this norm of openness is problematic in some cases. And here I want to, I want to um, uh, briefly outline a paper that was written by Alan and Toby Shevlane uh, on openness and on this culture of openness in, uh, in machine learning. And they were, in particular, they were looking at arguments that were made by the machine learning community against, uh, against OpenAI's decision to, to partially release and in favor of openness. And a lot of their arguments uh, were based on examples from cybersecurity. So in cybersecurity, they have um, this model of responsible disclosure, which means that uh, they publish all the secure, like all the vulnerabilities in software publicly, but only after a few a few weeks, so people have time to patch the to patch the leaks. But like, the the reason to publish these uh, these vulnerabilities publicly is uh, so that other people can learn from the mistakes and hopefully build more secure software. Now, in their paper, uh, Toby and Alan show that the comparison between these arguments in, in cyber security and AI uh, don't, really, don't, don't really apply in all cases. And that, in fact, while you can, uh, when you patch a security leak in a software, uh, you, you patch a piece of code, whereas when you, have, you publish your AI system, out, um, then like, in many cases it's irreversible. And it's much harder to patch, uh, to patch the new vulnerabilities that pop up. And here, like, think, for example, of voice deep fakes that fake the, the voice of a loved one um, and like, they're quite like, widely available. So with a snippet of voice, you can, you can create these deep fakes and that are being used for fraudulent cases. Now, once these uh, models are out there, it's really hard to take them back. So the comparison, uh, the comparison doesn't, really, uh, doesn't really work that well in all cases. Now, um, how much time, how much more time do I have? <laughs> Five minutes? Seven minutes. Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, so we also, we're also working on, on trying to, um, to implement these insights more practically. So I'm just going to briefly outline, like here we have developed, a, or we are in the process of developing a guideline for machine learning uh, researchers about how to conduct responsible research. It's going to be based on work that has been done in the academic community, and it's going to be a hands-on uh, guide that takes researchers step, uh, step by step through the um, research progress. Now, here uh, we've been focusing on the machine learning research community and how the machine learning research community, where the machine learning research community is heading and how that might affect the safe development of artificial intelligence. Now, another interest um, of ours, though, is to figure out like, what does our own community do? And one thing that has been emerging in the last few, in the last few years is that there seem to be two parallel communities working in the AI ethics and society domain. And these communities can be roughly described as those working on near-term issues like algorithmic bias, um, autonomous vehicles, fairness, and uh, those who are working on more long-term oriented pro uh, projects, or what is usually called the, like, the long-term community, such as superintelligence or advanced AI. Now, it's a bit odd that there, like, there seems to be like, like almost a rivalry about which is more important. So here we see Kate Crawford, who is a, one of the founders of AI Now and uh, has done excellent work on, on fairness, and Ryan Kahlo, who say, oh, you know, the, this whole talk about superintelligence is overblown and we should focus on the real issues. And then we have others from the long-term community who say, 
uh, well, you know, but like it's really important that we talk about this now and not in the future because the, the effects are so drastic. So with my colleague Jess Whittlestone in Cambridge, we were wondering, okay, what is going on? Like, is this actually a useful distinction to, um, that is being made here? And so we tried to figure out whether the, the division of the communities into these two blocks is not a bit too crude and in fact not very useful when we think about the AI ethics and society space. And what we found is that when people talk about near-term and long-term, they mean very different things by it, in fact. So people defining near-term and long-term, sometimes they refer to the capacity of an AI system or, um, so, or of, about, of they think about the impacts or their research priorities are set because they believe they want to focus on more extreme risks or they want to focus on certain risks. So we've identified these four dimensions um, and uh, we think like all of these are not binary, by the way, like these are very much gradients and, and a lot of these, uh, a lot of uh, research projects are going to be somewhere, are going to fall somewhere in the middle here. And we've just uh, focused on uh, capacities and impacts and just mapped some of the research developments or some of the research priorities onto, onto, this, uh, onto this graph. And you can see that it is far from clear that there are actually these two clusters that emerge, like the long-term and the near-term cluster. In fact, like, there is a lot of overlap and the communities could benefit much more uh, from engaging with each other, exchanging methodologies, exchanging knowledge. Okay, so here is a paper that... Uh, for, for future reference. Okay, some of our work has also been done on privacy, but more with a focus on like how can we use ML to actually enhance privacy. This is by Ben Garfinkel, but sadly I won't have time. So I will just uh, briefly skip to the teaching part because Peter asked me to talk a bit about this course that I gave um, last year with the Oxford Artificial Intelligence Society. Uh, it was a six-week course and each, uh, like each class was two hours. Now the uh, benefit of not doing it as part of the university but with a student society is that you can actually have the first, you can actually also invite people who, um, who give expert talks. So what we did is we usually had the first hour of the course as a as an introduction on the topic on the various uh, topics that are listed here. In the second course, we had people from OI, from the Oxford, like Brent was there from the Oxford Internet Institute, but also people from FHI talking on the on the uh, on the uh, topic specifically. Now, for half a minute, I'm just going to talk about some of the policy engagement that we've been doing at FHI. Um, so there are a lot of uh, we've published a lot of work in OBETS. Uh, in, in, in newspapers and engaged with the public. And one of those uh, more remarkable engagements is um, that we're actually working together with the Partnership on AI on the so-called windfall clause. Now, the windfall clause was originally suggested by Nick in his book, Superintelligence, and it's, like it, it's a, legally commitment, uh, sorry, a legally binding commitment by private firms that in the case of a firm's profit, like in the case of firms' profits skyrocket because it has developed some transformative artificial intelligence, um, then every like parts of the profit about a certain threshold go back to the community or to humanity as a whole. Now there is a lot of substantial work that needs to be that needs to go into determining how exactly this will look like. But the good news is that our analysis finds that the windfall clause actually is legally permissible. So yeah, so this is a project that FHI, if you're more interested in it, then contact uh, Jade or, or Alan and um, please get in touch with us. Okay, so that's all. Thank you very much.